Tonight, we're going to finish the, the, the second half of, of chapter 1 on faith's convictions. So, let's pray together. Father, we just come to you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have given us this word that we're going to be looking at tonight and how it came to us and what you showed Simon Peter about the word of God. And Lord, I just pray that you'll bless us with hearts to understand and eyes to see. Take the veil off of our eyes, Lord. Help us to see and to hear what the Lord is saying to us through his word tonight. Would you breathe a prayer, church, and say, Lord, I receive your word as the very word of God. Change me tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if I finish on time with enough time, I'm going to take a couple of questions. So you might want to be thinking because Aaron is ready to run. You hear Aaron? He already ran away. All right. Turn to your neighbor and tell him good to see you in church and you can be seated. God bless you. I hope Aaron's coming back. All right. Now, um, last time we closed out with the seven kingdom character virtues that we're told to add to our faith. Let me give them to you real quick. Peter said we're to add to our faith virtue. Everybody saying with me, virtue, Virtue. knowledge, Knowledge. self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. He said, diligently add these things to your faith. The promise is that if we do so, we'll never be barren or unfruitful in our knowledge of Jesus. Now, picking up chapter 1 and verse 10, Peter goes on to say, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. Now, there's no way you can study a book like this without doing word studies. There's just no way. We've got to understand... Now, how many of you do understand that the New Testament was written in Greek, right? Raise your hand if you understand that. If that's news to you, raise your hand. Good, it's news to you. That's good. And the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. So when I say, now, what that word means in the original, what I'm referring to is the original Greek. It was written in what was called Koine Greek, the the Greek of the common man, all right? In, in Jesus' day. So uh, that's, that's just so you'll know when I refer to that, that's where that word came from or that word was translated from the original. You know what I mean now. So having said that, the word for diligent carries the idea of zeal and haste. He said, he said, I want you with all diligence, be even more diligent to make your calling and election sure. It means with zeal and with haste, excitedly. I want you to excitedly, you look at a, at a sports stadium, and when your team is winning, you see zeal, right? Everybody's jumping up and screaming and yelling, and they're excited. They're zealous about it. But we're to be zealous about spiritual things, amen, when our team is winning. Now, he says, be diligent to make your calling and election sure with zeal and haste. We're to exert ourselves and make an effort. It's not to be a back burner, but a front burner issue with us that we grow, that we grow spiritually. Make every effort to make your calling and election sure. Now, the calling that Peter speaks of 
is how God invites all people in the way he invited us to receive his gift of salvation. Amen? He called you, and you responded. Now, I don't know about you, but I remember, well, of course, I was in jail, so I'm going to remember where I was. But, it, but, it's a, but it's very vivid to me. I mean, it was a long time ago, but it's vivid to me. I can remember. You know, the preacher, he, he looked like Clark Kent. He looked what I would have called back then square or not cool. And black frame glasses and the hair slicked back. And he even had on a suit. And all of us had on jeans and pullovers. And, you know, we were a bunch of juvenile delinquents. And, but he stood up and he just quoted John three sixteen, And he started preaching the gospel and the cross of Christ. And it just nailed me to the wall. And I got convicted. And I remember God called. And I responded. Amen. Do you remember when he called you? Do you remember where you were, what you were doing? And he called you. All right? That's what he's talking about. Remember, remember, and make, more, make your calling sure. That means, in light of the fact that he called you, be sure that you're in Christ. Be sure that you're saved. That's where he's going with this. He called you and you responded. Now, the word election has to do with God's foreknowledge of your salvation. Because he is omniscient, and that means all-knowing. God knew ahead of time that you would respond to his call to come to his son. He knew that Jeff Wickwire, sitting in jail at 16 years old, would hear the gospel, and he knew that I would respond. He knew. I heard the call, I responded, and God did not say, well, I'll be. (laughs) Uh-uh. He said, I knew you were coming all the time. Right? Right? That's, that's God's election. That's his foreknowledge. He knew. He knew when you were coming. He knew when you were going to get saved. He knew exactly when your moment would come. So when we are saved, two things are at work. God's calling and our responding. The Holy Spirit sees to it, I believe, that everybody has an opportunity and ability to respond when God calls. And our part is to do the responding. Now, notice what John writes. He said, this true light, Jesus coming into the world, gives light to every man. John says that everybody at some point in time is approached by and given a chance to respond to the light, Jesus Christ. He said, well, what about about those that don't hear the gospel, Jeff? They have the testimony of nature. And they can look at nature, Paul says in Romans 1, They can look at nature and say, uh, God had to do that. That had to be work of God. Evolution, folks, on on its face is ridiculous. It's preposterous that all of this came by chance and time? Never. And not only does the lost person have the testimony of nature, he has the testimony of his conscience. The Bible says that God has written his commandments into every man and woman's conscience so we know when we've done right and wrong we know we have guilt we feel guilt we deal with guilt and for those of who who do something really bad and can't get rid of their guilt their guilt destroys them there's only one real answer and it's not snuffing the guilt out with drugs or alcohol or whatever but it is taking the guilt to the 
foot of the cross and let the blood of Jesus cover your guilt. Because only the blood can wash it away and give you a clear conscience that is joyful in God's presence. Amen? So God's sovereignty, we need to understand, never rides roughshod over others. The Holy Spirit sees to it that everybody has an opportunity to respond to his call, but he will not force himself on anyone. He doesn't do it. The Holy Spirit's a gentleman. Amen? So in verse 10, Peter is essentially urging his readers to ensure that they've got the real thing. By doing what he said in verses 5 through 9, adding those seven virtues to your faith, we will indeed make our calling and election sure. Peter's conviction is this. If you've got true life, you're going to be growing. Anything alive grows. Amen? Come on, everybody. Anything alive grows. You know, I've got rose bushes out back, and I just and I have to prune them every once in a while. And I'm telling you, just a few days ago, I looked out there and said, man, they look so good. And this morning I looked out there, and here's two long stems hanging out there, just gnarly and totally outgrowing the rest of it. And that happened in like two nights. And you know why it grew? Because it's alive. Are you alive in God, in Christ? Then you ought to be growing. Amen? Come on, everybody. Now, the second part of verse 10, if you do these things, you will never stumble. Now, there's a promise you want to claim. If you do these things, the things that he gave us in 5 through 9, adding to your faith the things he gave us, if you do these things, you will never stumble, meaning fall. If you keep on growing in your faith, then the things that accompany salvation, spoken of in Hebrews 6, 9, that's growing in your faith. There will be no occasion for you to stumble and fall. So Peter's thought is this, steady spiritual growth is crucial to your victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil. Peter has a, if he's got a mantra, it's this, grow in grace and grow in the mercy and in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Grow in grace. Can we say it together? Grow in grace and in the knowledge of Jesus. We ought to be further along tonight than we were a year ago on this Wednesday night service. We ought to be further along a little bit anyway than we were a month ago. We ought to be a little further along than we were last week. Because living things grow. Amen? Now, we might say that Peter is encouraging us against what I'm going to call world bordering. I know you're thinking waterboarding. I know you thought that. But no, I said world bordering. And what I mean by that is this. It's to have one foot in and one foot out. You're good at walking around the edges of the world like somebody would walk around the edges of a dangerous flame. So I'm just going to call that world bordering. You're not praying, how far away from the world can I get? This this kind of person. How far away from the world can I get? But how close can I get without still staying right? Don't look at me so holy. How close can I get without going all the way in? How how close can I dance around this flame without getting in real trouble with God? Instead, we ought to be praying, how far away from this mess can I get? How sanctified can I get? How holy can I get? But 
when you're, when you're really dealing with temptation, you might go, okay, Lord, if I get this close, can I still be okay? This close? Because I'm, I'm, a, I'm a world borderer. Okay? Peter is saying, watch that. Don't forget that there were those amongst the children of Israel that were very content to settle for the wilderness side of the Jordan. When you come to Jesus, you got to be all in. I mean, all in. Amen? No, dip your toe in the water. Uh Uh-uh. All in. You dive in. You are sold out. It's Jesus, 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 and more Jesus, and Jesus is everything to me, and I am dead to the world and alive to Christ, and for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I'm all about him. Amen? Peter is wanting us to be sure that that's where we are. Now, he promises next in verse 11 that if you do this, so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I got to tell you what that seems to imply to me, that there's going to be degrees of glory hereafter in proportion to our faithfulness in how we use God's gifts here. And I can show you many verses on that. I'm not saying there's going to be a Rodale Drive in heaven. I'm not saying that there's going to be Beverly Hills. I'm not going to say, I'm not, there's not going to be upper class, middle class, lower class. But there is going to be, there are going to be differing degrees of reward and glory. In the parable of the talents that I preached on Sunday, for instance, two of the three recipients of the master's talents heard the words we all want to hear, well done, enter into the joy of your Lord. But the one that buried his gift did not receive such a welcome. The Lord also says to two of them in the very same parable that due to their faithfulness with a few things on earth, they were good stewards with what God gave them on earth, he would make them rulers over much in the world to come. Did you read the same thing I did? So what we do here regarding the opportunities that God gives us, will decide our capacity for what is coming. I believe that. Some people are going to have several crowns. Some one. I hope to have a couple. I'm shooting for a soul winner's crown and a pastor's crown. And I know we're going to toss them at his feet, but listen, Paul, listen folks, Paul lived with the thought I am storing up treasures for myself in heaven. I am not about what I can get on this earth. I'm here only to serve Christ. I am looking to the world that is to come. Because this world is only a blink, a camera, a, a camera flash, a, a snap. I mean, it's here and gone. Just like that. But hereafter is eternal. It never ends. And isn't it funny that Jesus said, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Where moth and rust corrupt and thieves break through and steal. But store up treasures for yourself in heaven where moths and rust don't corrupt and where a thief can't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He went on to say, you can't serve God in money. You got to make up your mind between one and the other. Money should be your servant, not you, it's. Amen. Amen. I want my money working for me. I don't want to work for my money. That is, I don't want to live for it. I don't want to live for it. I'm not about money. I'm about doing what he's laid his hand on me to do. And that's the way we're all to think. So Peter says, says, I want you to be sure. I want you to be cognizant of the fact that 
Another world is coming. Think with me for a minute. Paul's capacity for the world to come is surely going to be greater than Demas's, who walked away from the Lord and joined this present world. And don't you think that Peter's capacity and glory is going to be greater than Ananias's, who dropped dead in the temple for lying to the Holy Ghost? Amen? Amen. Now, Peter next reveals what is most pressing to his heart, because he knows he's going to be martyred soon. Listen to how he says it. For this reason, I will, be, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Now, again, he uses the phrase, these things. What is these things? It's the seven character attributes that he talked about in verses 5 to 9. He said he's going to use that phrase, these things, five times in chapter 1 alone. He keeps thinking back to these things. Add to your faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, patience, and so on. So be all about growing spiritually, these things. So he says it again in this verse. I, don't want you, I will not be negligent to remind you of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Peter believed in the constant repetition of a thing. He's known as the apostle of remembrance. To repeat something was to nail it in their souls. He's always saying, I want to remind you. Let me remind you. Oh, have I reminded you lately? It's like your mother always reminding you. You know, take out the trash. Let me remind you to take out that trash. Mow that lawn. Do this, do that. I, I don't know. I remember my parents always reminding me of things that I didn't want to be reminded of. But Peter says, I believe in the power of repetition because I believe when I repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat, you're finally going to get it. So he says, so don't let me bug you, but I'm going to be reminding you. Jesus used the very same phrase regarding the coming ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says in John 14, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. And what will he do next, everybody? Bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. Holy Spirit's going to have the same ministry as Simon Peter. Or do you reckon Simon Peter had that ministry because it happened to be the way the Holy Ghost deals with us? He reminds us. Have you noticed how the word of God, once you read it, have you noticed how it sticks in your brain? You can be walking along and, and, and not thinking of anything and suddenly maybe you feel attacked or maybe you are, begin to experience some kind of a trial and immediately the Holy Ghost reminds you of verses, reminds you of things you've learned, reminds you of your faith walk reminds you of the faithfulness of God, reminds you of that he's a prayer answering God, reminds you that you're in a spiritual warfare and you're not battling flesh and blood. He reminds us, doesn't he? The Holy Ghost reminds us all the time. That's the ministry that Simon Peter had. Now, he stays with this thought of reminding, of repetition in the next verses. Look at verse 13. Yes, I think it's right. As long as I'm in this tent to stir you up, by reminding you. Here he goes again. It's human nature, isn't it, to remember the things we should forget and forget the things we should remember. Amen. Come on, everybody. Amen. Somebody hurt you 23 years ago, and you remember it like it was yesterday. 
And all the time you hash that thing back, you, you bring it back up. The devil brings it back up in your head. We remember the negative things about uh, sometimes about our mates or our friends or about our churches. Amen. We re- remember bad experiences. But we ought to be remembering the goodness of God, the mercy of God, the faithfulness of God, the promises of God, the word of God, the sacrifice, the love of God, the the patience of God, but we don't. So we need to be reminded. So Peter says, as long as I've got breath, I'm resolved to remind you of the apostolic teaching that God has given to you, the early church. And it's the same truth, folks, that we now hold in our hands in our Bibles. Do you love the word of God tonight? Do you love the word of God tonight? I mean, have you developed a a love for it? And and if you don't feel an overwhelming love for the word of God, um, it'll come. You know what? Read it. Think about it. Learn it. Because the more David finally said, you know what? The word of the Lord is like honey, and it's sweeter than the honeycomb. Jeremiah said, I found your word, and I ate it, and it was like honey going down into my soul. The word of the Lord is sweet. It is good. It is powerful. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. So to Peter, uh, it was, I'm going to root you and ground you in the truth of the word. If I've got to remind you and remind you and remind you as long as I'm on this earth, and this, he knew, would assure their fruitfulness, their faithfulness, and their steadfastness in the things of God. So the apostle of remembrance. Now, I believe we need to be reminded on a daily basis of the truths of the word of God. Now, I can tell you after pastoring a lot of years, walking with the Lord most of my, li- <clears throat> most of my life. I've walked with the Lord most of my life. I'm so glad I can say that. The moment you drift away from the word, your spiritual life will drift as well. Guarantee you, you put that word down and you get busy with other things and you neglect it for a week or two. It's a, I hate to say it, this is kind of weak, but I'm going to say it anyway. Seven days without the word makes one week. I know it's cheap and I know it's canned, but it's true. I mean, I'll do anything up here to get it over, right? So, but it's true. Seven days without the word makes one W-E-A-K. Amen. It makes one week. You got to stay with it every day. Every day. You don't have an option. Man shall not live by bread alone, Amen. but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That's how we live. You can't defeat the devil if you're not in the word. You won't grow if you're not in the word. Amen? Now, next, Peter speaks of his soon-to-come martyrdom. He gets real honest. Verse 14. Knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Peter was destined to die a martyr. Jesus had told him as much in John 21, 18 and 19, and that's what he's referring to in the verse when he says, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. He showed him in John 21, 18 and 19. He said, Simon, Simon, up to now, you've gone where you wanted and done what you wanted. But Simon, things are about to change because the day is coming when they're going to take you where you don't want to go and you're going to have to do what you don't want to do. Peter looked at John 
who had not received any such word. He said, what about him? And Jesus said something really, really important. He said, if, if, it's, if, if, if it's my will that he lives, what is that to you? You follow me. You know, sometimes we watch people and we get jealous, we get envious, we, get, we, we struggle with, uh, you know, either how, how well they're doing or we look at somebody and we look at the trials they're going through and we compare our lives to them particularly if, if they're really looking blessed. And we say, Lord, I don't get it. Here I am, I'm going to be a martyr, but look at them. They just seem blessed, and, and, and you haven't spoken that over them, and it seems like everything they touch turns to gold. And you know what the Lord says? What is that to you? Amen. Amen. You follow me. It's so important that we understand every one of us is completely individual, yeah. completely unique yeah. in the eyes of God. His plan for me is not his plan for you in some ways. His plan for you is not his plan for me. We have a corporate purpose that is absolutely one, and that is we are to worship the Lord and serve him with all of our heart, and one day we're all going to glory. We've got many things in common, but there are individual things about all of us that are not the same. So it's, it's silly to look at somebody and go, well, gosh, Lord, you sure seem to be good to them, better than you are to me. What, what about them? And the Lord just says, hey, what is that to you? Amen. You follow me. See, Paul said, comparing yourself with one another is not wise. Amen? John lived to be in his 90s. Peter went home much younger. Tradition tells us that when the time came, Peter asked to be crucified upside down. He knew he was going to be crucified. Think about this. And he asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't feel worthy to die as the Lord had. He knew for years that he was going to die a martyr's death and it would be by crucifixion. Now, how would you sleep at night knowing that? Amen? Come on. How would you sleep at night? But look where he got. He, he's telling us in verse 14 about his, his impending crucifixion, uh, in, like he's taking it in stride. Amen. He so trusted the Lord. He speaks of his determination, even knowing he's going to be martyred, to remind them of these things, verses 5 through 9. As long as he is left on earth. I'm going to remind you, going to remind you. I'm going to dedicate my life to you. I'm not going to be all caught up in what's coming on me. I'm not going to be all obsessed about my future martyrdom. No, I'm going to focus on you. And when my day comes, my day comes. But until it comes, I'm going to remind you, remind you of these things and remind you of these things and remind you of the, I care more about you than I do me. Furthermore, he promises in verse 15, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder. There he goes again. And no wonder he's called the Apostle of Remembrance. I'm going to be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. You know what he's telling him there? I'm going to do some writing. And you know what I'm going to write? These things. Amen? Amen. He's telling him he's going to write, uh, which is how we have one and two Peter. That's how we have them. His reminders to them after his death would be by way of the written word. Now, what's interesting to me, I noticed this, that the word he uses for decease is exodos. 
from which we get the word exodus. He calls his decease an exodus. Now, exodus means a way out or a departure. He said, I'm not just dying and going back to the dust. He says, I'm leaving this world. It's my death. Catch this, everybody. Death, he says, is my way out to go to a better place. When God's time comes, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be martyred. But it's going to be my way out. It's going to be not an accident, but it's going to be an accomplishment. On the Mount of Transfiguration that we're going to talk about more in a minute, the very same Greek word was used to describe the Lord's own impending death, exodus, exodus. And Jesus' death for sure was an accomplishment. Amen? Amen. There was no fear in Peter. The Lord Jesus had already blazed the trail. So the former fisherman, now a mighty apostle, took his approaching execution in stride. He resolved to make full use of what time he had remaining to remind them of God's word. Amen. Now, so far, Peter has talked about our walk with God. Now, next he's going to talk about the word of God. This is one of my favorite topics. He begins with the integrity of the word of God. Look at verse 16. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables. Now, the word for fable here is muthos, and we get myth from muthos, myth. So he's saying we didn't follow cunningly cunningly devised myths, stories, children's tales. The word of God, folks, is not a myth. Amen? Amen. The story of Jesus is not a made-up children's fable. It was not cunningly crafted by people trying to start some new religion. Uh Uh-uh. That's not. That's not what the word of God is. Now, Simon Peter had a firsthand knowledge of both the facts of Jesus' life and the history of the church. He followed him for three years. Slept where he slept, ate where he ate, watched the miracles, watched him walk on water, watched him cast out devils, watched him raise the dead, watched him ascend back into glory. Peter had seen it firsthand, the virgin birth, the sinless life, the countless miracles, the peerless teaching, the atoning death, the burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return of Christ are all verifiable facts. Amen. Amen. We have not, we are not here tonight celebrating some silly myth. This is not Grimm's fairy tales. This is history. And the word of God is true. And that's what Peter's about to tell us. Peter goes on to say in the second half of 16, when we made known to you, when we made known to you, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now he affirms something. He affirms we weren't lying to you. He's telling his readers, we weren't lying to you when we told you first about his power. We weren't lying to you. He's talking to people to whom he had preached the gospel. He says, we weren't lying to you when we told you about the power that rested on Jesus Christ. The miracles he had performed, the power he exercised over the forces of hell, 
The word he uses is dunamis, which means unhindered, untrammeled, unequaled, dynamite power. That's what rested on Jesus Christ. It is this power of his that can make crooked men straight. How many of you were a crooked man and now you're straight? Come on, come on. His power makes crooked men straight. We don't need Freud. We need Jesus. Drunken men sober. How many of you can say that's true? Come on. Uh, How about wicked men pure? Come on. This power made demons flee and his power made diseases disappear. We're talking about the power of God. Peter said, when we told you about the power he exercised, we weren't lying to you. And it's the same power, hallelujah, that will be exerted someday soon to call millions out of their graves at his return when he gives the shout. We're coming out. Amen. Peter says, we also spoke to you about his return, his coming again. He said, that wasn't a made up story. It's true. He's coming back. And he continues talking to the people to whom he had preached the gospel and who had come to Christ through his preaching. He says, we also told you of his majesty, which Peter, James, and John had personally witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus shined as brightly as the sun, amen, while speaking with Moses and Elijah. Wow, what a a moment that was. Jesus took his three inner guys with him. He said, let's go up the mountain. They had no idea what they were about to see. They get to the top of the mount. I say, okay, here we are. Nice view. And all of a sudden, everything changed. Folks, follow with me here. Use your sanctified imagination a minute. Suddenly, something supernatural took place that was absolutely spectacular and unbelievable. Suddenly, Jesus began to glow as bright as the noonday sun. It looked like he was wearing all white. And suddenly, standing next to him on either side, Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets. And he's talking to them, and they're talking to him. Peter, not knowing what to say, said. Lord, uh, it'd be good if we built all of you here a little, a little tabernacle. And suddenly there was a voice that came from heaven as if to say, shut up, Peter. Seriously, shut up, Peter. Be quiet. You don't even know what you're saying. And the voice said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Now we're going to talk about more about, about that moment in just, in just a second. But notice with me, Peter has been dealing now with the integrity of the word. It's not a lie. It's the truth. We were eyewitnesses. We're telling you the truth. The word's integrity is impeccable. But next he's going to talk about the instruction of the word. He focuses a lot more closely on what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration that had burned itself into his memory forever. And the word that came from God while they were there. Verse 17, for he, Jesus, received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. He's saying a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased. And look at what Peter says. We heard this voice. 
which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Again, think about it with me. On the mount, the Lord Jesus had been transfigured. The Greek word is the word we get metamorphosis from. He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. Transfigured here means to change form, like a caterpillar changes totally into a butterfly. It's a major change, a major transformation, a stunning difference. Something happened on that mountain that was just absolutely mind-blowing. But Peter had also heard a voice. Not just see, he didn't just see the glory on Jesus, and he didn't just see Moses and Elijah, but he heard a voice. The words had burned into his soul. I love the way he calls it, not just a voice, but he says, oh, such a voice. Such a voice. It boomed and cut. It shook and thrilled his soul. Peter said it came from the excellent glory. It came straight from heaven. And the voice they heard had focused all its attention on the Lord Jesus Christ himself. The voice pointed them not to Moses because the law now is about to be done away with as in the old covenant. And the prophets represented by Elijah, were about to be totally fulfilled by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. He's saying, Elijah, the prophets, Moses, the law, all that pointed to the new covenant are about to pass away and be replaced by the new covenant. So he says, I want you to look at Jesus and I want you to hear him now. It's all about Jesus. Hear him, follow him, bow to him. It's all about Jesus now. Peter says, this voice from heaven we heard. See, he's telling the folks, he's telling those that came to Christ for his preaching. He's saying, look, we didn't lie to you. And I'm telling you, not only did we see his miracles, but we heard the voice that came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son. We heard it. We were three normal men standing there, and we heard these things. They were eye and ear witnesses, period. It's not made up, says Peter. It's not a fable. Amen. Amen. So that book you've got in your hand has impeccable integrity. It's totally trustworthy, totally believable. From Genesis to Revelation, it's the very word of God. And you can stake your life on it, you can walk on it, you can live by it, you can die by it, you can trust it. I want you to trust your Bible. So far, Peter has talked about the integrity of the word, the instruction of the word, and now he's going to talk about the incomparability of the word. He said in verse 19, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Now he's comparing the word to the Mount of Transfiguration experience. And he's saying the word is even more sure than what we saw on the mount. Even though the Mount of Transfiguration was awesome with the sights and the voice that accompanied it, we have a more sure word of prophecy in the written word of God. Now, a lot of people these days, folks, place more credence in visions and experiences than they do the Bible. They do. People believe 
some things, or some things are attributed to the Holy Ghost that when I look at what they're saying is the Holy Ghost and I look at the Bible, I say, there's just no way. That's the Holy Ghost. Peter is saying the word of God is the most sure foundation to build your life on more than experiences, more than something as powerful as the Mount of Transfiguration was to us. We have a more sure word of prophecy. It is the Holy Bible. Everything must be held up to the scrutiny of God's word. Do you agree with that? As Paul warned in Galatians, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse, even if it's an angel or what looks like an angel. And to the Corinthians, he warned about Satan's ability to disguise himself. He says, Satan himself masquerades. Now we're headed for Halloween when we put on masks, right? And we become something else than what we really are. I don't. And if you come to our fall harvest festival, you won't either. But you will see some freaky things walking around out there that are visiting from other neighborhoods. And we're glad to have them because we're going to give them the word of God. We have 3,000 plus people every single year. Amen. But, and it grows every time. Last week, the weather kind of hurt us. But, but when the weather's been good, we've grown every year. So you're going to see people out there masquerading as something that they're not. And you've got to understand that's what the devil does. But he doesn't put on an evil mask. He puts on a good mask, a convincing mask, a, a, a mask that makes you think he's light and from God, but he's not. He's wearing a mask. He masquerades as an angel of light so he can deceive you by the way he appears to you. The devil doesn't come to you in a red suit with a tail and a pitchfork and horns. He comes to you in the form of something beautiful attractive, magnetic, convincing, persuasive, charismatic. That's how he comes to you. And that's where you get the word bewitched. (laughs) Bewitched. When when you believe the devil, when he comes to you, disguises something else. You're actually bewitched. Paul said to the Galatians, who has bewitched you? So Peter assures us that the Bible is the more sure word. So he advises, listen to it. Verse 19b, which you, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your hearts. Now notice that Peter said we're living in a dark place. Let me ask you, church, are we living in a dark world? Amen. Oh my, is this world spiritually dark or what? Come on. Amen. Has it gotten darker in your lifetime? Right? I'm seeing things in America now I never believed I would ever have seen in America. We're we're living in a dark place. And and speaking of the Greek language now, when you look at this word dark, what the Greek word Peter used that we translate into dark, it's only found one time in the whole Bible. And he's the one that used it. The word dark. The Greek word for dark that he used is used only once. Once. And here's what it means. It means dry, dry. Parched, squalid, murky, and dirty. Now, there are some adjectives that describe our world, right? So since we live in a dry, dark, murky, and dirty world, we must daily, daily, everybody, read God's word, which gives us a sure and steady light to lighten our path. I used to live in East Texas. You know I did. 
we, had, we lived on four acres, and there was a creek that ran through my property. And where there's water, there is life of all kinds, good, bad, and ugly. We used to walk, we used to look out our windows sometimes. We would look in our backyard down into where the creek was, and there would be deer drinking the water. And uh, all kinds of critters. It was my kind of world. I, I was an all-boy growing up. I loved creeks, tadpoles, lizards, uh, um, crawdads, you name it. I was a critter kid. I brought home things in my lunchbox, got where my mother would never open up my lunchbox when I got home because I had things in it. I had lizards, snakes, things that I'd caught. And, and uh, she learned one day, she opened it up and a green snake came out. And I'll never forget her scream. I was in another room. And boy, did I, from that moment on, did I, did, what, did I have the fear of mother in me or what? Because she let me know in very certain ways, you don't ever put a reptile in your lunch again. But now, when I would go down at night, I would, I would take, I, I, there was a little path leading down to that creek, but I would never go down there at night without a flashlight. Never. A big flashlight, a bright flashlight, because our creek was infested with water moccasins and there were copperheads. They were very dangerous. So I always took a light. And you know what? That, that light took care of my next step and then the, my next step. And you didn't want to put it way far ahead because if you put it way far ahead, you didn't see what was directly under you. You had to put it right down on your feet. And thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That's what the psalmist was talking about. So every day, come on, everybody. Every day, we need the light of the word of God to lighten our path because we may very well step on a serpent that can poison us Amen. without the light of the word of God. Soon, says Peter, the day star is going to appear, which means the light bringer. The very last title for Christ in the Bible is the bright and morning star. When Jesus returns, the nighttime is going to be over and day will dawn at last. Amen? Now, one last thing and we're done. Peter has spoken of the Bible's integrity, its instruction, its incomparability, and now finally its inspiration. He says, knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Hold your Bible up. Got your Bible, hold it up. All right, now, from Genesis to Revelation, not one line in that Bible was a man's idea. Okay? It was not a man's ingenuity. It was no man's genius. None of it came from the will of man. The Bible did not originate with the writers themselves. They didn't think it up Amen. on their own. He says in verse 21, because prophecy, and that's the word of God, it's prophecy, the word of God, never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The word moved is from a Greek word meaning born along. And it's the same way a ship with a sail is pushed along by the, by the wind. You put that sail up and the wind grabs it and, and you are born along by the wind. That's how these men were born along by the Holy Spirit. They, those who wrote the Bible were caught up by the Holy Spirit. And carried forward at his will. Now it went something like this. It wasn't automatic writing. They didn't go to a trance. <laughs> they sat down, pen in hand, 
to write a letter to the churches like Peter has or record a historical event or to phrase a song like the psalmist has. And suddenly the Holy Spirit took hold of them, the sail of their faith, caught them up, bore them along, and they wrote. And so what we have is the very God-breathed word. Amen. Amen. So you hold in your hands a special book. Okay, you know what? I think I'm going to be able to take two or three questions. So Aaron is going to grab the microphone. If you've got a question for me, anything I've covered tonight or something that's been on your mind, I will try to answer it. I can't promise I'm going to know the answer to every question. But anybody have a question? Okay, right over there. All right. I read that socialism is not Christian and, in fact, replaces God. Socialism is not Christian? No, it's not. Now, there are people who say that, well, the, the, the disciples practiced socialism. Read the book of Acts because everybody gave what they had to everybody else. But there's a difference. They voluntarily gave it. Socialism, you're forced to give it. And that's the difference. It says they just gave out of their hearts. And that's like we tithe. You're not forced to do it. We don't send ushers out with guns to your head and say, give. You know, you give it voluntarily. So, so, but that's the difference really between the New Testament and socialism. Okay? Does that answer the question? So, no, it's not Christian. Knowing that uh, the Russian and the Turks are right now in Syria, do you think this is the Ezekiel 38, 39 taking shape? Okay. Say that one more time. I'm going to try. I got part of it. I think I know where you're going. So I can't hear you, Aaron, unless you have the mic up. He asked if the, sorry, if he, he asked if the Russians and the uh, Turks in Syria mean that Ezekiel 37 is on the horizon. 38. 38. Ezekiel 38, you read about Gog and Magog, and then uh, um, different nations that align with them to attack Israel in the last days. Ezekiel 38 has never been fulfilled, not anywhere in history. It is one of the unfulfilled prophecies that are yet to happen. I've studied Ezekiel 38 and 39 extensively, and I can tell you that Gog is without a doubt Russia. The land of Russia and the nation, or the, the country of Russia. And it says that Gog and Magog have, uh, have countries that join with them, and it names them. It, it names Persia. But ancient Persia makes up, made up the landmass of what is now Iran and Iraq. It names several nations that are going to, to align with them. And it says like a cloud, they're going to come down against Israel. And it's going to look like it is history for Israel, which is not even as big as New Jersey. And right when it looks like Israel is going to be wiped out, God intervenes. Now, I personally believe that what Ezekiel describes is nuclear. I'm just going to throw it out there. I could be wrong. But boy, it reads nuclear because it says Zechariah chimes in about the same event. And he says, their eyes are burned out of their head while the, and their mouth or their tongue out of their mouth while they stand on their feet. Yeah. 
That means, whew. And I hate to be crude. You're gutted while you stand. Amen. And it seems, now it can, it can be wrath poured out from heaven, or it can be God allowing a nuclear exchange. But the bottom line is, Israel is spared, and all of those nations, including Russia, are completely obliterated. Some have called Ezekiel 38 the final jihad. Because the nations that Ezekiel names, aside from Russia, are all rabidly Islamic right now. And they surround Israel right now. And they hate Israel right now. You say, well, Jeff, when will that happen? I believe it'll happen midway through the tribulation period. I believe it is one of the things unleashed when Antichrist goes into the temple, commits the abomination of desolation, and announces that he is God and breaks his covenant with the Jewish people. And they freak out that this guy they thought was so great, Antichrist, has broken his promise and his covenant. And literally, all hell breaks loose, literally, when he does this. And I think the Ezekiel war, the Ezekiel event, is part of what goes down. So just throw that out. But no, I don't believe right now that's happening. I believe, but I, all the nations, Ezekiel names, it's amazing. Ezekiel was, wow, a thousand years before Christ? I, I don't know exactly, but centuries before Christ. He wrote this. And the way he describes the globe and the alignment of countries from way back then are the way they are right now. Wow. The word of God is true. Amen? Okay. Anybody else? All right, I guess I intimidated everybody else. No, here's one. Here's one question. Well, they make Aaron run, don't they? That's, you're good. You're good. All right. One more question and we're done. Uh, does God create evil? Because it says in Isaiah 45 verse 7 that he uh, does. So I just, know, I just want to know what you thought on that. So. He doesn't create evil. And I, I would have to check the Hebrew word there because sometimes a word is translated that can be a little bit misleading because there's not a word in English that best fits the Hebrew word. God uses evil. He uses evil, we know from verses like Romans 8:28, that even when evil happens to us, God's children, he makes all things work together. Well, evil has to be part of those all things. And you can look all through the Old Testament, New Testament. You know, Joseph's brothers were evil. They meant evil for him. As even Joseph said, you meant evil for me, but God meant it for good. And so God took the evil they intended and he worked it for his glory. So he doesn't create evil because he's not evil. He can't do anything evil, but he uses it for his glory. All right. Are you going somewhere because you got a hand? No. Okay. Let's stand up, everybody. How many of you are glad for the word tonight? Amen. Aren't you glad for the Holy Bible, the word of God? Amen. How many of you know what I'm talking about with a light looking for a snake? Every time you go out your front door in the morning, there's snakes waiting for you. You better have the light shining. Amen. Let's lift our hands to the Lord of glory. Lord, we just thank you tonight. Lord, you cared enough to give us this incredible word through 
your servant, Simon Peter, the fisherman, who you transformed into a mighty apostle of God. Lord, thank you for his transparency. Thank you for his heart of love for God's people. Thank you, Lord, that we see that the Bible we have has impeccable integrity. It's truth. We thank you for giving us this word. In Jesus' name, let's worship the Lord of glory for just a moment.